Well, hello again, everybody. This is Christian Massar with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Today, we're going to be looking at another uh, warfare topic, this time this Battle of Iwo Jima. Um, also, if you want to go back to episode 6, it's not related to Iwo Jima, of course, but it's related to the Pacific War, uh, to the U.S. US and Japanese uh, Pacific War during World War II. Um, but in that episode, we looked at the Japanese invasion of the Aleutian Islands, some of the rationale, and also an evaluation of it. So today we'll be looking at Iwo Jima, which happened a few years after the Aleutian Islands campaign. And uh, also we'll be giving a, a little bit of a strategic analysis of both the American and the Japanese side, as well as also giving a uh, general history of the battle and how it progressed. But uh, first, I do want to give a quick little message for your consideration, and then after that, we will carry on with the episode. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I sure hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the podcast via Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. If you would like to donate, go to my Patreon link at patron.podbean.com slash historical thoughts. And again, that's patron.podbean slash historical thoughts. Now, let's get back to the episode. Raising Old Glory on Iwo Jima taken by Joe Rosenthal, is one of World War II's most iconic photos, if not one of history's most famous photographs. The, battle, the, photogra the photograph was taken during the Battle for Iwo Jima, which lasted from February till March of 1945 between the Americans and the Japanese in World War II. Yet despite the glory of the photo, the battle was very bloody. The island of Iwo Jima was only seven and a half square miles in size, but still, the battle lasted for a month and it killed around 27,000 American and Japanese soldiers. Iwo Jima's Japanese garrison was commanded by General Tadamichi Kurobayashi. Although he did not win the battle, Kurobayashi was effective as the alarming American casualties showed. His defensive plan for Iwo Jima was different from the traditional Japanese view of the time. Because of his creativeness and innovation, Iwo Jima became an excellent defensive position from which all modern-day soldiers and military historians can learn. The high number of casualties of Iwo Jima has sparked controversy. Historians debate whether or not the invasion, American invasion of the island, codenamed Operation Detachment, was truly necessary. Some, such as naval historian Major Robert Burrell, may argue that Operation Detachment did not achieve its goals, and therefore the mission was not justified. On the other hand, it can be suggested that just because a mission may not have achieved all of its intended purposes, this does not mean that it was foolhardy or useless to pursue. So first, I just want to give a background of the Pacific War before Iwo Jima. Uh, the Pacific War between the Americans and the, and the Japanese Empire started on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese forces launched a surprise attack against the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Pearl Harbor was the location of the strongest Allied naval force, and the Japanese hoped that destroying this would make it easier for them to take naval control of the Pacific as they expanded throughout Southeast Asia. The Japanese destroyed four American battleships, three destroyers, and 160 aircraft in the Pearl Harbor raid, 
and more than 2,400 Americans were killed. Yet, instead of scaring the United States, the attack made America declare war on Japan the following day by a landslide vote in the House of Representatives and the Senate. The Japanese hoped that the raid on Pearl Harbor would buy them time to entrench themselves in the, in the lands that they had conquered in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Indeed, Japanese air superiority in that area, their use of surprise, and the slowness of the Allied response in general blessed the Empire of the Sun with six months of victories following Pearl Harbor. The Japanese had a strong navy as well, and their troops were more experienced than Allied soldiers, uh, having been on a war footing with China since the 1930s. Shortly after the Pearl Harbor raid, the Japanese captured several Allied positions. Guam, an American holding, fell in two days. Wake Island, another American outpost, was conquered on December 23, 1941. The Japanese had also attacked British Hong Kong on December 8th, and the city was in their hands by December 26th. The American garrison stationed on the Philippines surrendered in May 1942. The Japanese now had control of the Western Pacific and Southeast Asia by that same month, and they were in a position to threaten Australia, the Indian Ocean, and the Central Pacific. From May 1942 onward, however, fortune changed hands. The Japanese had committed a fatal mistake in the attack on Pearl Harbor. They did not destroy American aircraft carriers. The Japanese, the Japanese Navy subsequently lost at the Battles of Coral Sea in May 1942, Midway, June 1942, and then the Solomon Islands from August to November 1942 as well. Before retreating, the, the Japanese had lost four heavy carriers at the Battle of Midway, for example, which the Japanese had never recovered from, and there they had also lost 253 aircraft. The Battle of Midway balanced Pacific sea power in the United States' favor. Midway also forced the once proud Japanese Navy to become a defensive force for the rest of the war. Meanwhile, the Japanese Army was struggling to defend New Guinea and Guadalcanal from American counterattack. The battle for Guadalcanal started in August 1942, and the island was eventually abandoned in February 1943 because the Japanese feared continuing naval losses. And this was a decisive battle because the Japanese put enormous effort in defending the island, but they eventually lost. This cast doubt on the good reputation of their army. The American Navy, on the flip side, was able to replace the losses it had suffered at both at Pearl Harbor and, and subsequent losses during the war. It was thus able to continue its offensive. Ever since the early times of the Pacific War, American leaders like Fleet Admiral Ernest King wanted to take the offensive to Japan. In their minds, it would be best if Admiral Chester Nimitz, who commanded the Pacific Fleet, oversaw this operation. However, Army General Douglas MacArthur, who had, defended, who had tried to defend the Philippines before, was popular. Hence, Nimitz, under Admiral King's supervision, and MacArthur were given shared control of the Pacific War effort. MacArthur now commanded the Americans in the Southwest Pacific, while Nimitz was responsible for the Northern, Central, and Southern Pacific theaters. In Admiral King's view, taking the Marshall, Caroline, and Mariana Island chains would give the Americans a viable invasion route to the Japanese home islands. This path was more direct than MacArthur's proposal to push towards the home islands along New Guinea's northern coast and then again through the Philippines. Uh, and King's axis was more direct because the Marshall, Caroline, and Mariana Islands 
where island chains were made up of, of small, more than uh, a thousand tiny islands that were spread out uh, far apart. And so this would allow the American Navy to attack virtually any tiny target island. And, um, and the island's garrisons would not be able to support each other because of the distance between them. So in essence, Admiral King's plan to was essentially island hopping. Um, so the, in the way that the islands were far apart and you just grab each one piecemeal and they're small so it, it was you wouldn't have to dedicate so much um, so many assets to it. Although you know some islands, if they were big enough and they had enough of a Japanese garrison around them, all the Americans would have to do is set up sea uh, naval superiority in that area and perhaps even bypass an island or two. So this makes them their drive upon the Japanese home islands a little bit quicker. And also with the with the Philippines, there are also lots of islands uh, as well. But the Philippines are their islands are many of those islands are very big. So while the the plan to MacArthur's plan to retake the Philippines uh, was was carried out, and the Philippines were eventually retaken from the Japanese. This is a, a bit of a bit of a longer slog than than going around and taking um, some islands in the Marianas and other island chains. So this uh, this was the rationale uh, behind that plan. And finally, taking the Marianas would uh, Marianas island chains would also cut off the Japanese held Solomon Islands, Rabaul, which was a major uh, major base in that area, and also Japanese occupied New Guinea. So Admiral King's and General MacArthur's proposals were accepted by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in April 1943. So two prongs would push towards mainland Japan. One of these would charge through the island chain under Admiral King and under Admiral Nimitz, and the other, the other thrust would roll over the Philippines under the command of General Douglas MacArthur. In the meantime, the Japanese suffered more defeats. In 1943, they were defeated on the American Aleutian Islands of Kiska and Atu, and they were also defeated at the Battle of the Bismarck Sea in the Pacific. By now, the Americans were closer to achieving superiority in the Southwest Pacific. In the Central Pacific region, Nimitz began his offensive as well. Tarawa and Macon, part of the Gilbert Islands, were both attacked on November 20th, 1943. After three days of bloody fighting, both islands fell to American troops. Nimitz could now launch an offensive against the Marshall Islands, which were to the northwest. The U.S. successfully took control of the Marshalls in February 1944. And finally, the Americans secured the Marianas Islands that summer. At this point, the Japanese Empire had no chance of winning the war. On July 16, 1944, which was nine days after Saipan and the Marshall Islands was taken, the cabinet of Japanese Premier Tojo Hideki resigned, and with General Koiso Kuniaki taking his place and forming a new government. The Marianas capture by the U.S. had placed the Philippines, one of Japan's oil suppliers, within range of American attack. Even more frighteningly, even more frightening for the Japanese, the Americans could also bomb the Japanese mainland from the Marianas. All the, all the Americans had to do was make appropriate modifications to the airfields. Though much was left to be done, the stage was set for the closing acts of the Pacific War, and Iwo Jima was an important scene in the deadly play. Operation Detachment was launched for numerous reasons. 
The United States Army Air Force, or the USAAF, wanted to use Iwo Jima as a fighter base. The theory was that American fighter, craft, fighter aircraft based at Iwo Jima could escort B-29 Superfortress bombers during their long-range bombing raids against Jap Japan's home islands from the Marianas and eventually the Philippines. Fighters based in the Marianas could not provide such escort, as the Marianas were, islands were too far from Japan for them to travel the whole distance. On the other hand, Iwo Jima was only 660 nautical miles away from Tokyo. Additionally, Japanese airplanes had attacked B-29 bases in the Marianas seven times between November 1944 and January 1945. Iwo Jima would give the Americans a base from which their fighters could, could intercept such Japanese attacks, but as long as Iwo Jima was in Japanese hands, these airstrikes were, were allowed to continue. On October 18, 1944, the Joint War Plans Committee listed three other reasons to conquer Iwo Jima. Quote, In effect, this operation would contribute toward Japanese, lowering Japanese ability and the will to resist by 1. Establishing sea and air blockades 2. Conducting intensive air bombardment and 3. Destroying enemy air and naval strength. The capture of this island would help make feasible the ultimate invasion of the industrial centers of Japan. And that quote comes from James A. Warren's book, American Spartans. The capture of Iwo Jima was made all the more appealing to the Americans because their navy was advancing northwards towards Okinawa. Iwo Jima was only about a thousand miles east of Okinawa, so it was a convenient stepping stone towards this main objective of Okinawa. Admiral King called for the capture of Iwo Jima in early 1945. He had appointed Admiral Raymond Spruance to undertake this mission. At Ulithi in the Caroline Island chain, a quarter of a million men loaded supplies for the impending Operation Detachment, and hundreds of ships were assembled. The landings on Iwo Jima would, were to be performed by General Harry Schmidt's 5th Amphibious Corps, which consisted of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Marine Divisions. Admiral Nimitz picked General Holland Smith to head the land battle. American, the Americans had already begun attacking Iwo Jima in late 1944. On November 11th and 12th, the U.S. Navy bombarded the island for the first time. Starting on December 8th, the 20th Air Force also commenced bombing of Iwo Jima. These aerial attacks, combined with more naval bombardment, lasted over 70 days. About, about 20,000 shells and 7,000 tons of bombs had been let loose on, Iwo Jima, on the Japanese garrison by January, 9, January 15, 1945. However, the Japanese of course also had plans for Iwo Jima as well. According to their Outline of Army and Navy Operations, which was dated January 20th, 1945, and this plan was also known as Shogo, which we'll be calling it uh, for the rest of the episode, the Japanese were planning to fight the final battle on the home islands. Before this final stand, Imperial forces were to fortify a position along the, quote, the Bonin Islands, Formosa, Taiwan, and the coastal sector of eastern China and southern Korea. Iwo Jima was part of the Bonin Islands, and it was to play a vital role in Japan's defensive strategy. Shogo dictated that when, Amer when the Americans broke through this def their defensive perimeter, the Japanese were to fight a war of attrition. Local island, garrison local island garrisons would resist the Americans without reinforcement. 
and they were to kill as many American ships, aircraft, and soldiers as possible. And this was ultimately meant to delay a home island invasion while dealing a hard blow to enemy morale. So the Americans were also forced to fight a war of attrition. Meanwhile, Japan would fortify and prepare the home islands for the final campaign. So this was an idea of the defensive perimeter is not going to be moved. This, it's not going to be reinforced. It's going to be fortified, but it's not going to receive any support from the home islands. It's just going to stay there. It's going to grind the Americans down, while in the meantime, the home islands are getting ready for the ultimate final battle. Before 1944, Iwo Jima was a relatively unimportant island. According to naval historian Samuel E. Morrison, the island was a, quote, whistle stop on the airline from Japan to the Marianas and, Marianas and Carolines. It housed only about 1,500 soldiers, and there was only one small airstrip. Things changed, however, after the Americans took the Marshall Islands in early 1944. Because the Marshall's capture made the Marianas and the Caroline Islands vulnerable, the Japanese decided to strengthen their position on Iwo Jima in March 1944. In about two and a half months, the number of the, the number of troops on the island had tripled. Two thousand men operated a dozen large coastal defense guns and forty-two anti-aircraft guns. By the time of the American landings in February 1945, about twenty-one Japanese soldiers were on the island, and a second airfield had also been created with another under construction. So by the time of the actual, the battle's beginning. Airfield 1, there were three airfields, one called, uh, known as Airfield 1 or Chidori Airfield, Airfield 2, the Motiyama Airfield, and the one that was being constructed was known as Airfield Number 3. And just a quick note on geography, the Airfield Number 3 was, was being constructed on the Motiyama Plateau on the eastern part of the island, and the Motiyama Plateau became a vital part of the battle later on. The American aerial and naval bombardment of Iwo Jima confirmed the Japanese fears of an invasion there. The Imperial General Headquarters sent Lieutenant General Tadamichi Kurobayashi and his 109th Division to Iwo Jima for its defense. Upon arrival, Kurobayashi feverishly made preparations for the U.S. attack. He evacuated the civilians living on Iwo Jima and tore down existing buildings, using their materials for Iwo Jima's defense. The Japanese commander also built an impressive network of caves and pillboxes. When aerial bombardment came, the Japanese soldiers would retreat to their protective holes and repair damages once the bombers had passed. Mount Suribachi, Iwo Jima's 150-meter extinct volcano, became a tower endowed with fortifications and artillery guns. Caves created inside the volcan volcanic fortress also provided storage space and living quarters. The tunnels allowed Japanese troops to move to other parts of the mountain without having to move over it. Thus, they thus these tunnel systems protect provided protection from American fire. And not only was the mountain an effective place to mount weapons, but it also provided high ground, as most of Iwo Jima could be seen from its peak. Iwo Jima's main defense line stretched between airfields number one and two. Dug-in mortars, machine guns, and artillery positions were placed here with underground tunnels connecting them together. Another defense line existed between airfield number two and the rise of the Motoyama Plateau in the east. And 
just as far as the caves go on the island, some of these caves had more than one entrance. And from these entrances, a mortar could be fired and pulled back before it received retaliatory fire. So you have this combination of not only guns, um, mortars, uh, tunnels, but you also had the caves and everything else. So the island was becoming a, a, a natural fortress in essence. Kurabayashi had turned Iwo Jima into a formidable defensive grid, interlocking fields of crossfire, protected key fortifications, and some installations had concrete walls that were five feet thick. A direct hit from a battleship was virtually the Americans' only effective weapon against such installations. The Japanese also hid their defensive positions very well with camouflage. In many times, these concealed places were only revealed when they opened fire. Sometimes American troops would pass the defensive stations and then the Japanese would fire into their backs. The island had become home to an astonishing 16,000 caves and pillboxes. General Kurobayashi was also resourceful, combining the island's natural volcanic ash with cement, which created a superior concrete. The Japanese used this concrete to integrate their pillboxes with the island's natural caves, wasting nothing Kiribayashi sometimes buried tanks and pits, exposing only the turret which could fire upon the enemy. Despite his defensive brilliance, Iwo Jima's commander did not expect to survive the upcoming battle. Kiribayashi and his 20, 21,000 men were alone. There was not going to be sufficient naval air or air, naval or air support from Japan. And this again was consistent with the Japanese Shogo defensive attrition strategy. However, we should note that some submarines were sent uh, to support the island in the battle's beginning stages. Kamikaze airplane attacks also sank the U.S. escort carrier Bismarck Sea and damaged another, the Saratoga. In general, however, the Japanese did not have enough airplanes, carriers, or pilots to significantly resist the American Navy or offer support to Iwo Jima's garrison. Yet Kurobayashi did not despair, as is evident from his tireless efforts to build up the island's defenses. He was a Japanese commander, thus it's fair to say that his decisions were influenced by Bushido, the old samurai code of honor. And now, I haven't looked at Kurobayashi's uh, logs or diaries for, for this particular project, so that would be something to look at. But uh, this was, even though the samurai system had not been had been abolished a few decades before World War II, this, um, this culture was still, still evident in bonsai charges and kamikaze attacks and so on. And Bushido, which means way of the warrior, taught the Japanese soldier, even by World War II, that surrender was dis dishonored the emperor, his family, and himself. Bushido disciplined his followers to sacrifice and be courageous. Also, the Japanese government had been indoctrinating its children with respect for the emperor and for nationalism. In the words of Robert Burrell, in his book, The Ghosts of Iwo Jima, Japanese soldiers like those on Iwo Jima had been, quote, overdosed with submissiveness to authority and glorification of war, end quote. Also, by the time of the Iwo Jima landings in 1945, the Americans and Japanese had been fighting for a long time. This toughened both sides' resolve and determination. And Kurobayashi appealed to each, quote, inner samurai within his garrison. Uh, despite the difficulties, he ordered his troops to fight until their last breath. Capture was not an option. The general called for a campaign of guerrilla war and infiltration behind American lines on Iwo Jima, 
and he called upon his soldiers to kill at least 10 Americans before dying. He even gave special badges to soldiers who volunteered to become suicide bombers against American tanks. Kurobayashi also harshly disciplined his troops. Burl notes that many Japanese on Iwo Jima were untrained recruits and his staff were was somewhat slow and the they were slow to get used to his methods and one of his commanders uh, criticized him as being quote overly obsessed with details. Kurobayashi meticulously inspected his troops and worked with seemingly infinite energy. The garrison met their commander's strictness with resentment and annoyance, but circumstances demanded nothing less from him. Without the possibility for reinforcement and certain defeat, Kurobayashi needed his men to be disciplined. And again, in accordance with Shogo, Kurobayashi wanted to damage and slow down the enemy as much as possible. James Warren notes that Kurobayashi wanted to turn Spruance into Purus. If he caused enough damage, the Japanese commander hoped that he could dissuade the Americans from invading the home islands, or at least making it a lot harder for them. To achieve this, Kurobayashi decided to follow unorthodox inland defenses instead of trying to repel the American invasion at the beaches. Beach defenses did not protect Tarawa and other islands, as the American navy and other forces were able to just destroy defensive positions with relative ease. Kurobayashi wanted the Americans to land on the beach until they were tightly packed. Then he would open fire on the enemy from the previously mentioned defensive positions. American soldiers would also be caught in artillery, mortar, rocket, and embedded naval and tank gun fire. In fact, American underwater demolition teams had found no mines on the shoreline around the time of the American landings. No obstacles were in place to prevent U.S. landing craft from approaching, from approaching the beach. Clearly, Kurobayashi was trying to lead the Americans into a trap. Kurobayashi's plan was also unorthodox in that he forbade his soldiers from launching, bon launching bonsai charges. Remember the Bushido we just, mentioned, we just talked about, the Samurai Code of Honor. And the bonsai charge was a product of this samurai, ancient samurai tradition. In a bonsai, samurai would charge into the enemy in a fury of courage and bravado. And these types of charges were used in World War II uh, when they were used in Guadalcanal, on the Aleutian Islands, and in other places. So the bonsai was still used, historian Ronald Spector believes, because the Japanese didn't experience this extreme firepower present on Europe's battlefields of World War II. So thus, according to this idea, Japan did not learn from World War I's suicidal charges undertaken by British, German, French, and, and eventually American troops as well. Uh, Kurobayashi, however, knew that Bushido and Bonsai charges could not stand up to superior weaponry, and even though Iwo Jima's situation was ultimately hopeless, he demanded that his men be practical as much as possible. And there's... Another point here, too, that bonsai charges, they, they're dangerous and they're terrifying and everything, and they could break an American line. But the, the problem is that they are tactically impractical in many situations because the Americans preferred to kill the enemy in groups. And if you have a, if you have a good defensive position, and if you have enough firepower, this is a lot easier to do against a group of enemies charging at you than slowly having to eliminate and grind through and eliminate um, Japanese positions piecemeal, right? 
And, in fact, during the Battle of Iwo Jima in early March, one of Kurabayashi's officers disobediently led the Bonsai charge against the Americans. And for every American killed in this charge, the Japanese had lost many more soldiers than one. So, in the Amer so the advantages of American firepower over Japanese warrior spirit, they had been made clear. So sending Kurobayashi to defend Iwo Jima was a good decision. Firstly, Kurobayashi held his head high and did not lose hope despite Iwo Jima's hopeless situation. Second, he worked extremely hard to fortify his base and used the island's natural features and, uh, and its, even its volcanic ash to help make this improve the defensive situation. Third, despite his ban on bonsai charges, Kotobayashi did appeal to Japanese military culture in that he urged his men to fight until the end and to demand that surrender was not an option. Fourth, Kotobayashi's attention and attention to uh, discipline and attention to detail, perhaps although resentful, resented, was necessary for Iwo Jima's garrison to do its job. So now the American invasion begins. The American invasion of Iwo Jima was preceded by a three-day naval bombardment, which was begun on February 16, 1945. General Smith, whose Marines were charged with taking Iwo Jima, had requested a 10-day bombardment from the Navy. Admiral Spruance declined this request, however. He gave the Marines three days because he was concerned about ammunition supply. He wanted to save resources for the planned invasion of Okinawa in April, and Spruance thought that the bombardment more than three days would give the Japanese more response time. Then came February 19th. Seven American battleships, seven cruisers, and ten destroyers launched another massive bombardment. Then the 4th and 5th Marine Divisions were to land on their respective uh, landing color-coded areas along the southern shore of Iwo Jima. The 4th Division would land on beaches yellow and blue, and from there it would head for airfield number 1. The 5th Division landed on beaches green and red, just to the southwest of the 4th, Amer 4th Division beachheads. And from the 5th Division, one regiment would was ordered to cut across the island and face north, while another would cut off Mount Suribachi. The 3rd Marine Division was held in reserve. Upon landing on the beach, the Marines faced very little resistance. The Americans thought that their previous bombardments had been taken out the defenders, if only they knew of Kurobayashi's inland defense plan. As the Americans advanced, the Japanese then let loose with their mortars, machine guns, and artillery onto the American beachhead. The Japanese strikes killed hundreds of Marines in minutes. The attack soiled the beach with wreckage, and by 1100 hours, the beach had to be closed because there was so much debris. The Americans could no longer land troops and supplies from the late morning until the early afternoon. The volcanic ash caused more difficulty for the Marines as well, as soldiers could sink down to their knees. It, the ash had a wheat-like consistency, making it very difficult to dig in for cover as well. Despite the shelling, the Marines were able to pull themselves together, and 30,000 soldiers had landed on Iwo Jima on the first day. They did, however, suffer over 2,000 casualties. More than 500 were dead or missing and almost 1,800 were wounded. Another, about another 100 had suffered too much combat to fatigue to fight. By the end of the day, the Marines were far short of their objectives and the breachhead was much smaller than had been planned. It was only 4,000 yards long, 1,100 yards deep in the west and 700 yards deep in the east. 
Six infantry regiments, six artillery battalions, and two tank battalions were bunched into the small area. Mount Sotobachi, however, was effectively cut off. Japanese artillery attacks continued throughout the night. The Japanese did not launch a counterattack or a charge, holding positions in their fortifications. The Americans did not get their chance to kill hundreds of Japanese soldiers in a Banzai attack. This was going to be a long, protracted battle. Because it was the high ground, the Americans had to take Mount Sotobachi before they attacked the enemy's main defense line to the northeast, between airfields number one and two. This proved to be a difficult objective, as more than 60 blockhouses had to be eliminated on the approaches to the, to the volcano. About 50 more positions were placed near the mountain's base. The Americans pressed against Mount Suribachi, taking constant fire from machine guns and mortars. They were eventually able to eliminate Japanese resistance on the mountain slopes, however, thanks to tank and artillery fire. On February 23rd, the 2nd Battalion of E Company, 3rd Platoon, 28th Marines, was ordered to capture Suribachi's peak. Forty Marines made the trek to the top, but surprisingly, they encountered no resistance. One of these Marines attached an American flag to an iron pipe, raising it at 10.20 hours. A larger flag was raised a few minutes later, and Joe Rosenthal, a photographer with the Associated Press, took the battle's iconic photo of this second flag raising. This morale-boosting action brought forth cheers from the Marines who could see it from below. Now the high ground was in American hands, and the Marines no longer had to fear Mount Suribachi's wrathful artillery as they attacked the main Japanese defense line. February 23rd also brought another victory to the Americans, for by the time Mount Suribachi was captured, airfield number one had also been secured. It was now necessary to break through the defensive line north of airfield number two. As mentioned earlier, the Japanese had placed many anti-aircraft guns, artillery, and anti-tank positions here. This was where Kurabayashi placed many of his large caliber armaments. However, accomplishing this would allow the Americans to push up through the Motoyama up push up the Motoyama Plateau on the island's widened eastern half. The Marines' push to the east began the next day, on February 24th, with an hour of artillery and airstrikes, and many tanks had also been assembled for the attack. American tanks and troops attacked airfield number two for two days, but they were pushed back. The airbase proved a tough, tough nut to crack, thanks to the enemy's anti-tank positions placed along the Motoyama Plateau. Japan's 145th Infantry Regiment also defended the air airfield, which SLA Marshall called, quote, among the very best Japanese units on the island. A frontal assault was the only way for the Americans to attack the area, since machine guns and soldiers protected the flanks along the slopes. And, of course, the airfield, being an open area, made any advance along it very dangerous. On February 25th, the Marines attacked the airfield again with eight tanks in support. After losing five of these tanks and both of their company commanders, the men pulled together. After calling in naval fire upon the ridge, they scrambled up and reached the summit of, of the Motoyama Plateau. Then the Japanese launched counterattack, which degraded into bayoneting, clubbing, and strangulation. But the melee was over in about ten minutes. The Marines had emerged victorious, and they had control of the ridge just before Motoyama Plateau. Now that airfield number two was theirs, the Marines had other objectives to the northeast, such as the pleasantly named Meat Grinder. The Meat Grinder consisted of four features. 
And the first of these was Hill 382, which was located just northeast of airfield number two, housing artillery guns with machine gun support. The second feature on the meat grinder was the so-called turkey knob, and it was 600 yards southeast of Hill 382. The knob hosted a Japanese communication center, and Iwo Jima's southern parts could also be seen from its summit. To the south, there was a third feature, nicknamed the Amphitheater, a gentle natural depression. Defending this hollow were five Japanese infantry, one artillery, and one engineer battalion. And finally, there was Motoyama Village. The settlement had been destroyed, but the ruins offered excellent cover. With its extensive defensive positions and intimidating geography, all of the meat grinder's points had to be captured if the Americans were to make any more significant progress. The 5th Division was assigned to attack the Motoyama Plateau, which included Hills 362A and B and Nishi Ridge as well. The 5th Marine Division pushed forward 300 yards and captured two, wells, two water wells from the Japanese, but by March 10th it had seized Hills 362B and a small hill north of Nishi Ridge. To support this thrust, General Schmidt had landed his reserve 3rd Marine Division, which also pushed towards Modiyama Village. And this reserve unit was needed because by now the 4th Division, the 4th Division's combat effectiveness was at about 60%. The 3rd Division had easier terrain to conquer than did the 5th Division. Despite facing accurate anti-tank fire, the 3rd Division broke through the Japanese defensive line and took the Marines, remains of Modiyama Village. This was significant because without the village and nearby and the nearby central ridge, the enemy could not rain down fire upon the marines to the south. The 3rd Division then endeavored to capture airfield number the unfinished airfield number 3 and reach Iwo Jima's northern coast. These goals were eventually achieved by March 10th. About a week later, the 3rd Division's assigned area was declared secure. On February 25th and 26th, the fourth was ordered to attack the fourth US Marine Division was ordered to attack the meat grinder. The fourth division captured Hill 382 on March 2nd, but its combat effectiveness was now at only half. This is not surprising at the meat as the meat grinder had claimed 500 marines on the first day of this assault. Yet the division persevered and eventually eliminated all the meat grinder strong points. This was in part thanks to the suicidal action of Japanese captain Samaji Inurie on March 9th. Inurie was the man mentioned earlier who had disobedient disobeyed Kurabayashi's orders about banzai charges. This banzai killed 90 marines and wounded about 250 more. This charge was wasteful though as the marines killed 800 Japanese soldiers in return including Inurie. The 4th division sector was cleared of enemies nine days later. Kitano Point, located on the northern tip of Iwo Jima, was now the last point of Japanese resistance. The island had been declared secure on March 16th, but Kurobayashi and 1,500 Japanese soldiers remained alive there. From here, they continued fighting for fortifications. The Japanese launched a final attack on March 26th, shortly before dawn. Over 300 men, including sword-toting officers, broke through the American lines. Heavily armed and well-coordinated, these troops attacked the elements of the 7th Army Air Force and CB Camp, and the CBs being naval construction crews. The Japanese killed many of the sleeping pilots, but some Marines and CBs formed a skirmish line. Then a three-hour-long melee began. 
The Americans drove off the Japanese, causing Hedgewood casualties. At least 50 Americans had died in this attack, with many others being wounded. Finally, on March 26th, after over a month of arduous combat, General Harry Schmidt declared Operation Detachment to be finally concluded and called Organized Resistance on Iwo Jima finished. Small pockets of Japanese resistance still, still continued, however, but as for Kurabayashi, his body was not identified in the March 26th night attack. It is suspected that he committed suicide in his command post. So, death's account. Iwo Jima cost a horrible amount of lives. According to Richard B. Frank, the Amer American Marines suffered 22,099 casualties. 5,931 of these were killed. The Battle of Iwo Jima accounted for a third of the Marine Corps' total World War II casualties. Morrison claims that as of March 27, 1945, Iwo Jima killed 433 Navy men and left almost 2,000 more wounded. Almost all of the Japanese garrison was killed and only 1,083 out of over 21,000 survived. So now that we have the, the battle and how it went and kind of the background up to it, let's give a critical analysis of the American conduct of the battle. Although the Americans emerged from Iwo Jima victorious, their battle plan was plagued, by, plagued with some grave intelligence errors. In early January 1945, Admirals Nimitz and Turner read Japanese documents from the captured Marianas Islands. They calculated Iwo Jima's garrison between, to be between 13,000 and 14,000 strong, which was, and they were about 10,000 men short in their estimates. This was a fatal error because the Americans calculated the enemy's firepower based on how many soldiers he had. In underestimating the Japanese position on Iwo Jima, they also underestimated the Japanese defenses. Finally, Operation Detachment was expected to take only three or four days. After all, the Iwo Jima Island is, is very small. In hindsight, this ridiculously low estimate is almost laughable, considering that the battle took about a month. The Americans also made reconnaissance errors. Early in the planning for Operation Detachment, recon photos placed emphasis on Iwo Jima's airfields. This emphasis caused the Americans to miss def the defensive positions which General Kurobayashi was building elsewhere. Better, low-altitude photos became later on became available later on, but, uh, but bureaucratic changes caused problems. And this bureaucratic shuffle took away the Americans' highly skilled photo interpreters. Thus, American commanders were told that the Japanese were planning for a beach defense, which, of course, was not the case. After all, the beach defense had been uh, been common. I remember reading that uh, at Peleliu, a previous battle, the Japanese were sort of they were using a bit more of the inward inland uh, defenses, but the beach defense was a common Japanese strategy at the time. So when the when the Americans see the recon photos. Showing, showing an airfield and not really seeing all of the defensive positions, this one could argue that it's understandable why the Americans would think this is the case. American analysts at the time suggested that the terrace behind the landing beach was only about 4 feet high, but it was actually 8 feet high, rising to as many as 15 feet in some places. This made the landings harder on the American troops and vehicles than the analysts had suspected. During the landings, bulldozers even had to pull tanks over this terrace as tracked vehicles had a very hard time moving on the very soft and um, 
very soft volcanic ash. The Americans have also received criticism for their preliminary bombings and shelling of Iwo Jima. These preliminary strikes did not significantly reduce Japanese strength because of their entrenched and buried defensive positions. Some also believe that the 70-day bombing operation actually prompted the island's garrison to dig deeper and fortify their position even more. The strikes indeed alerted the Japanese of American plans for Iwo Jima, as stated earlier. If the Americans started these preliminary actions closer to D-Day, they would have been better able to catch the Japanese by surprise. However, on the, on the flip side of this, one Iwo Jima veteran named Richard Wheeler noted that during these... Uh, during these strikes, there were uh, there were craters created by bombs and artillery shells and everything. So, and these craters during the battle, they actually provided some good cover for advancing American troops. So now let's look at Kurobayashi's strategy. And uh, we've noted before that some of his subordinates resisted his untraditional island inland island defense plan. His highest-ranking subordinate, Admiral Ichimaru Toshinesuke, was particularly unimpressed. Ichimaru had arrived at Iwo Jima about a month after Kurobayashi did, and he had a traditional mindset. Unlike Kurobayashi, he wanted a beach defense, and he desired to attack the American ships with naval cannons. This was the accepted Japanese method to repel an island invasion, as noted earlier. Kurobayashi did eventually give in to Ichimaru and gave him some materials for a beach defense, but Iwo Jima's strongest position remained inland. And Kurobayashi has been criticized more recently for his inland defense plan. And this is because he allowed the Americans to establish a beachhead and fortify their position. Burrell suggests that if Kurobayashi prevented the Americans from establishing a beachhead in the first place, he could then launch a successful counterattack or wait for the Japanese Navy to save him. Indeed, by, by establishing a major defensive line along the Motoyama Plateau, Kurobayashi cut himself off from access to the only airfield long enough to land large airplanes. And so, there, again, there were the three airfields on Iwo Jima. So airfields number one and two were between about 4,000 and 5,200 feet long, while the as-of-yet uh, uncompleted airfield number three was only 3,800 feet long. And so this situation, Burrell says, would make resupply difficult would make resupply difficult. And finally, the fixed defensive positions did not allow much room for retreat or a tactical withdrawal. Kurobayashi expected his men to fight to the death, but the possibility of retreat should be considered so that men could be used later in the battle. For example, if there is the tunnel systems may have been may have allowed for uh, for retreat, but if it turned out that Mount Sorobachi was about to be lost. If if men were able to retreat, they could have been used later um, in the battle for airfield number two, for example. There are many ways in which one could defend Kurobayashi's inland defense plan, however. Firstly, it caused the battle to last a lot longer. Remember, the Americans were expecting this battle to last a few days. It lasted a month. From this perspective, Iwo Jima became a trap for the Americans and delayed them from moving on to Okinawa and other objectives, just as Kurobayashi and the Shogo plan wanted. If Kurobayashi emphasized a beach defense, the Shoguns could be completely destroyed by the American Navy. Then the Japanese would not have a very good backup plan. As it was, according to Warren, hundreds 
of Japanese fortified positions survived the shelling. And Burrell again notes that the bombardment had left 88% of the Japanese fortifications untouched. The battles for airfield number two and the meat grinder show how terrible Kurabayashi's inland plan was for the Americans. Secondly, the, it's important to note too, remember Shogo, the Shogo plan. The Japanese Navy didn't have enough strength by this point in the war, so it was pointless to wait for, it, for Iwo Jima's rescue or relief. So in truth, Kurabayashi did not have much choice other than to force the Marines into a battle of attrition. And for the final question, considering Operation Detachment's huge human's cost, it is reasonable to question its necessity. Was this operation justified? There's much sharp disagreement on this issue. Some argue that Iwo Jima had to be taken, while others believe that America's conquest of this tiny, tiny island did not achieve its objectives. Both perspectives shall be looked at briefly right now. And one critic of Operation Detachment is Robert S. Burrell. He believes that the decision to take Iwo Jima resulted from division within the American Army branches, or American military branches. The U.S. Army Air Force and the Navy, he said, wanted to outdo the Army. The Navy went ahead on its own to attack Okinawa, instead of waiting for the Army to finish its conquest of the Philippines and send men to capture Formosa. It should be noted that Operation Detachment's launch date of February 19th actually resulted from General Douglas MacArthur's postponement of the Lingayen landings. Some may argue that this delay gave Kurobayashi more time to build defenses, and thus the postponement of Operation Detachment was an American error. As previously stated, the U.S. Army Air Force, or USAAF, wanted to use Iwo Jima as a fighter base for bomber escort. The, a the AAF, according to Burrell, wanted to make a case for the strategic bombing of Japan, with the ultimate goal of becoming an independent branch of its own. And Jerry D. Morlock quotes Burrell saying that the USAAF's plan to have Iwo Jima as a fighter base failed miserably. After the battle was over, the Army Air Force moved over 100 P-51 Mustangs to Iwo Jima. However, the Mustangs' navigational systems were primitive, consisting, quote, only of a compass, airspeed indicator, and clock. The round trip from Iwo Jima to the Japanese mainland took nine hours, and strong winds haunted Japan's higher elevations. Additionally, the P-51 only had a range of 1,000 miles. Iwo Jima was only 600 miles away from Tokyo, and external fuel tanks doubled the range of the Mustang, but if the P-51s had to get involved in a dogfight, this increased range became much less effective, especially since if you're going into combat, the common practice was to detach, to let go of those extra fuel tanks. Even the Joint Chiefs of Staff planners believed that fighters taking off from Iwo Jima did not have the range to escort bombers on their way to Japan. Burrell says that, quote, only 10 escort missions were ever flown from Iwo Jima. The Army Air Forces could not use the island for the purpose that led to its capture. Additionally, Burrell points to the so-called lifeboat theory. Many have said that Iwo Jima's capture was justified because the island served as an emergency landing base for crippled bombers on their way back from raids on Japan. However, Burrell, note, Burrell points out that this justification was not mentioned until September 1945, months after Iwo Jima was declared secure, and even when the war was pretty much over. The USAAF claimed that 
Well over 2,000 B-29 bombers landed on Iwo Jima by the end of the war. The Army Air Force thus claimed that Iwo Jima saved 20,000 airmen since each B-29 carried an 11-man crew. However, Burrell says that this lifeboat theory is, quote, greatly exaggerated. He suggests that the Army Air Force grouped all landings on the island under emergency landings, hence the exaggerated figures. Finally, there's another island in the Bonin Island chain, known as Chichijima. It's about 300 kilometers north of Iwo Jima. And some believe that this would have been a more, more worthwhile objective than Iwo Jima. Chichijima, unlike Iwo Jima, had a port, which the, Navy, which the American Navy could theoretically use later. The Navy thought that Chichijima would best serve their purposes, and in this view, the island the, offered the best combination as a port and as a fighter-bomber base. Indeed, Iwo Jima was not as good a fighter base as the U.S. Army Air Force would have hoped initially, yet the benefits of Iwo Jima's airfields cannot be ignored. Remember, too, that one of the ideas of capturing Iwo Jima was to help intercept Japanese raids upon the Marianas, right? And also, the B-29s were able to land on Iwo Jima for reasons other than emergency landings. The bombers landed on the island for training flights and when they received light damage or when they needed fuel. If the weather was too poor for a flight to Japan, the bombers would stop at Iwo Jima until the weather improved. Also, Iwo was on the, at the midway point between the Marianas Islands and Japan, and this greatly helped the morale of the B-29 crews to just land and, and have a little bit of a rest. As for Chichijima, Morrison suggests that Iwo Jima was the better target. When the Americans decided to thrust up the ladder of the Bonans, he says, they were trying to decide on whether to invade Chichijima or Iwo. Although Chichi had the Port Lloyd Harbor, the island was too rugged for rapid airfield construction. It was also even more fortified than Iwo Jima, as shown by aerial reconnaissance. Considering the benefits enjoyed by the Americans after Operation Detachment, historians like Brian Hanley believe that the critics' condemnation of Operation Detachment is largely based on hindsight. He suggests that the Americans could not have known everything about Iwo Jima, its inland fortifications, Kuribayashi's strategy, or the consequences of Operation Detachment and the ultimate, um, ultimate results of it. Hanley acknowledges that there were intelligence errors and that, quote, inter-service rivalry informed the thinking of senior commanders. Having said that, though, human beings always make mistakes, and this includes military strategists. Responding to critics of the battle for Iwo Jima, James Warren says, The critics' literature certainly does prove the key, pla prove the key planners of Iwo Jima worked with incomplete information and were capable of miscalculation. No operation, and, end quote. No operation is ever going to be perfect. And Hanley defends Operation Detachment from another angle. Although Iwo Jima's capture did not achieve all of its intended objectives, for example, the usefulness of a fighter base there, the Americans benefited from Operation Detachment in another way. In response to Robert Burrell's condemnations, Hanley rebuts, Surprisingly, Burrell fails to consider the impending invasion of the Japanese mainland, planning for which had been in the works since early 1944. In attacking Iwo Jima, the Americans caused the Japanese to move many of their troops away from the mainland. Remember, the garrison was very small. It was like only about a thousand. And then suddenly by the time of the, uh, by the, time of the American attack, it was 21,000. 
Hanley says that these troops would have been better used in a hypothetical battle on the home islands where they could be reinforced and resupplied more easily. And the Allied invasion of Japan did not actually happen. The war was over before that plan could be uh, brought to fruition. But this wasn't known in February 1945. By the time the Battle of Iwo Jima started, the, the plan was to defeat Japan, and the invasion of, of the home islands was, was an idea at the time. So the Battle of Iwo Jima teaches valuable lessons. First, General Kurobayashi, commander of Iwo Jima's Japanese garrison, shows that a military leader who can think outside traditional methods can be an asset. His strong inland defense and stubbornness prolonged the battle for the island, which caused much more damage to the Americans than would a traditional and vulnerable beach defense. His networks of pillboxes and tunnels provided a perfect case study for even today's defensive-minded commander. Secondly and lastly, Iwo Jima is a good example of a battle that did not fulfill its full list of objectives, but it still brought advantages to the victors. The U.S. Army Air Force's goal of using Iwo as a fighter base did not pan out, yet the island did serve as a landing base, and it took Japanese troops away from preparing for the invasion of the Japanese mainland. This would have strategic consequences if the home islands were indeed attacked. To determine the justifiability of a battle, all benefits and costs must be weighed, even if we have the gift of hindsight and, and contemporary commanders of the time did not. So that's it for this podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm, I'm starting to realize that I'm thinking I probably need to get some new uh, sound equipment. I'm using a, uh, a blue snowball, which I really like. I think it's really good. The gain is good and everything like that. But um, I, think with a, I think a lot of it might have to do with positioning and also the room I'm in. I've mentioned this before, the room I'm in, it's a, it's a, it's a regular room, right? It's nothing too special. So I might have to think about... Um, about some ideas to help the sound. I hope the sound isn't too distracting. And uh, in this one, I'm noticing that already on the early playback, I'm getting some echo and everything like that. So, but uh, but we'll we'll see about uh, we'll see about that. Uh, this might be a new uh, project for our new goal for Patreon. And so, just at the end of the end of the podcast episode as well, I'll ask if uh, if you would like to you if you wouldn't mind, uh, please donating to my Patreon page again at Patron dot podbean.com slash historical thoughts so uh one of the projects i do have planned and i mentioned it on the site there but i'll mention it here too one project i have coming up is a history of russian cities and specifically russian cities that i've been to so including kazan kirov tembov uh, and of course moscow and st petersburg so i plan on doing that series and of course i want to buy uh, more books more research materials so uh, money is needed for that and uh, right now I have a goal of uh, $300 a month and uh, if you don't want to contribute that's quite alright too we all have uh, monetary needs of our own and that's totally fine but if you would like to uh, help uh, see this project come to fruition uh, if you'd like to pledge some money that would be greatly appreciated um, if you donate more than $5 I'll mention your name on a podcast episode and uh, but, any do but a donation of any amount would be greatly appreciated so uh, once again, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and I hope you're enjoying the, uh, the episodes in general. And uh, no, I'm really excited about uh, plans for historical thoughts and interpretations. We have a lot, I have a lot of projects I have in mind that I would like to do, and um, and hope you guys will join me uh, join with me. And thanks a lot for for being there in the first place. And uh, 
yeah, you, you take care and, and have a great one. And until next time.